You have to be intentional and authentic. And I think within that bucket, you do have to be willing to do anything. And I think you, 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 your team knows when you're willing to do it and when you're faking it. Creating meaningful connections with your people is, you know, is extraordinarily important and something that we do on a consistent basis. And that doesn't always mean like you have to get on, out on site every week or you know, every other week. I personally, every new team member that joins, I do a quick 15 minute meet and greet Zoom just so they know who I am, that direct connection. Give them my cell phone number, let them know that they can use it. It's not just you know, out there for novelty. Let me know if you're seeing things that you like or don't like or areas where we might be able to improve. And, and that's been really important. Welcome to Multifamily Excellence, the podcast that explores the ever-evolving world of the multifamily industry. I'm your host, Jonathan Treble. In each episode, I'll spend time with a world-class multifamily leader to learn how they're continuously pushing boundaries for excellence. You'll get to hear their perspectives on career progression, leadership philosophies, and strategies for operational excellence. Hello and welcome to another episode of Multifamily Excellence. This episode is brought to you by my company, With Me. With Me makes people's lives better every day through convenient, technology-enabled solutions for the multifamily apartment industry and beyond. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome to the show someone I truly respect and admire. He is the Chief Operating Officer of Trilogy, an award-winning real estate investment development and management firm. They've been making waves in 14 U.S. markets and have a remarkable $4.5 billion under management. With over 15 years of real estate experience, he is a true visionary in the field of multifamily. And when he's not shaping the future of our industry, you might find him hella skiing in Chile and diving with great white sharks. Girish, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Excited to be here. Excited to have you. And I just have to say, it has been a true pleasure getting to know you over the handful of years we've known each other in the industry, both as a, an advisor, a client, and also an investor in With Me. So thanks again for all the different ways you support the With Me company. My pleasure. The feeling's mutual. It's been great to get to know you and see the trajectory that you've put With Me on. Thank you. So... The purpose of this podcast is to dive deeply into the backgrounds and the current leadership styles and philosophies of multifamily executives like yourself. With that, I think the audience would love to know more about your current position today before we go back to your career arc. So can you tell us more about Trilogy Real Estate Group? and your role as chief operating officer. Yeah, so Trilogy's based in Chicago. We've got about 8,500 units currently either existing or in the development pipeline. And our footprint is Minneapolis down to Miami. So if you drew an oval around Chicago from north to south, we're kind of the, the furthest north part in, in the Twin Cities all the way down to Southern Florida. And my particular position, I oversee all of our operations. That's both from a strategy standpoint, but I'd say a, a, a heavy lift of my position is our property management business. Trilogy Residential Management. So I oversee all of our property management functions and a significant amount of our property management team reports up to me. Significant. Wow. That's, and how big is the reporting organization in terms of headcount? Yeah, total headcount. We're just under 300, right? And out of that, I'd say plus or minus about 190 are within that sort of operations and property management function. Okay. So, so your org is about a third of the company rolling into you? Plus or minus. Yeah. Got it. Got it. And I, I know the Trilogy is vertically integrated. So what are the other departments at, at Trilogy, just so we understand how, how the org is structured? 
Yeah. So everything from investment management, acquisitions, accounting and finance, systems, although systems is is a direct connect into operations as well, and then development, uh, which is relatively new. We started developing in plus or minus 2018. So that's that's relatively new and a new uh, new vertical for us. Okay. Excellent. Let's go all the way back. I know you're a, a Michigan State alum. You studied finance there. I'm also a finance undergrad. Uh, can you tell us, tell the audience, if you're your undergraduate, you felt prepared you for, for a career in real estate? I would say there's bits and pieces of that undergrad programming that, that would, you know, that were influential. I'd say, you know, sort of college as a whole and sort of the networking components were probably more influential than the, you know, the specific sort of uh, finance tracking, although there are still some pieces of that that I, you know, draw back on from time to time. Uh, but I'd say as a whole that, you know, that experience was, you know, was pretty influential and, in, you know, in sort of the trajectory and specifically moving to Chicago and, you know, and, and that next step in my career path. Excellent. You went on to get a master's in, I believe, real estate at NYU. When did you know you wanted to uh, pursue real estate as a career? Yeah. So at an undergrad, I, I did work for a couple of years in corporate finance, Fortune 500 company. And I think there was a, a moment where I stood up. And I just looked at the sea of cubes and I just, that, that was the moment where I'm like, I got to do something different. It just wasn't me. You know, it was, it was great. I mean, it was a good experience, but from my standpoint, I wanted to do something different. So I started to look at grad programs and I think, you know, higher education was always sort of a, a constant and something that I wanted to pursue. I wasn't sure what that looked like at the time, but I started initially investigating MBA programs and as I started to do that, I uncovered a couple programs that had some real estate tracking. And, and that was something that had always piqued my interest. I think, you know, I don't know where it came from exactly, but just sort of the thought of real estate, real estate development, it was in that, you know, in, in that sort of background throughout my, you know, undergrad and even before that. And I happened to come across a program at NYU, New York University, that was specific to real estate. So it was structured like an MBA program, but it was 100% real estate. And that really sort of caught my attention. And as I got into the program, I think that's really where the sparks started happening. It was unique in the sense that the professors were 90% practical and 10% theoretical. So when I say practical, it was the who's who of New York real estate was coming out of their day job and teaching us how to do real estate. And that's, you know, my construction professor was building World Trade 7. My, you know, finance professor was the head of commercial real estate for Bear Stearns. Our, our capstone project was fascinating because we actually underwrote a deal for, you know, for a professor who was the head of a, of a real estate private equity firm. And we presented our capstone in front of his investment committee. And he ended up, you know, doing a couple of those deals, which was just sort of, you know, incredible at the time. So it was really practical, hands-on experience. And I think that's where I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And it, it, uh, it took me on that path. Sounds like an incredible program. And that was, I believe, two years. You graduated in 2005. That's right. right. 2005. Okay. Interesting time to graduate into real estate. And then I believe from there you went to Monaco Development directly. I did. So, yeah, I was okay. I was thinking of staying in in New York. And that was, you know, sort of where I, I wanted to be. I, I felt like sort of a connection to the city. But at the same time, my brother had started a firm called Monaco Development and based in Chicago. But we were doing deals on the East Coast and Southwest, and we had just started to, to look at a couple assets in the Phoenix area. And he and his partner at the time asked if I was interested in joining. And my first reaction was, I've never been to Phoenix. I don't think that that's where I want to go. And I know you live there now, but 
once I, you know, had an opportunity opportunity to digest and actually go down and visit the, you know, the one deal that we were targeting and just the overall market, I fell in love with it. And this was March of 2005. And fast forward a couple of months, I ended up moving to Phoenix in 119 degrees in June and thought I may, may have made a mistake <laughs> with the, with the drastic weather shift, but March was pretty great. Wow. Yeah. Well, if you can bear it in the summer, you, you will be rewarded for the rest of the year in Phoenix. And kudos for for making a huge coast to coast change to to pursue a career passion. It's interesting you joined your brother, and I know that your brother is also in the C suite with you at Trilogy, which we'll discuss more later. What was it like working with your your brother in I think your first job in your first professional job in real estate? Right? Was it I don't know difficult at times? Was it was it actually easier? I hear mixed things about working with siblings or any family members? Yeah, I think, you know, the w with anything, if it was a new job and my brother wasn't involved, I think there's, you know, certainly a degree of learning curve, just stylistic. But the benefit is we've known each other for, you know, since my birth. And, you know, and, and I think that that has some intangible benefits that a lot of other relationships don't. So there's an immediate trust factor. There's immediate knowledge of, you know, who we are and, you know, and what our capabilities are. So, you know, Tactically, there's, you know, there, there's certain things that we had to sort of manage through and work through, especially when we were smaller, you know, but as we've continued to work together in our current capacity as well, it's just been incredible. And, you know, and again, there's a lot of trust there. I also go down a different path than he does. I think we, we you know, we, we both have sort of different avenues within our organization and that past organization, you know, that, that allowed us to thrive independently and, and, uh, and also collaborate in a really incredible way. So it's, it's been really rewarding. And of course, you know, you, you deal with challenges in whatever situation you're in, but, but this particular one was just, it, it's been an incredible journey. And now we've been, you know, working together since 2005. So, you know, pushing 20 years. That's incredible. A success story for, for siblings working together. And we'll, we'll talk more about Trilogy and how you divide your responsibilities, but let's go back to Monaco. So 2005, you land in Phoenix, you have your first multifamily job. Tell us more about that job, right? What, what was the day-to-day -day like? How did that that footprint in Arizona grow over the next three years that you were there? Uh, yeah, tell us more. Yeah, so Arizona, so th that particular company, we were doing both uh, new construction, uh, multifamily for sale, so the condo condo world. Um, in Arizona, we were uh, looking at existing acquisitions, doing a very heavy value add, so re reposition, renovation work, um, and then selling those. So true to true to the time of of the market, we were doing condo conversions. And so it was both running existing assets with the property management team, uh, as well as building a sales team and managing our construction process for the renovations. And it was fascinating. I mean, this is 2005. We bought our first deal, which was, you know, 250 units in Scottsdale, started that conversion process pretty quickly and took that deal to market within a short period of time. And it was insane. I mean, the, the market at the time was literally we had to hire security the opening weekend of sales because there was so much traction and so many people that wanted to purchase condos. And, you know, and, and uh, you know, from there, we, we purchased our second deal and then a third. And we were really big on data back then when a lot of other folks weren't. And so we really were able to see the sales trajectory from deal one to two to three taper off. And it was, you know, incremental at first, but then, you know, obviously it became much more drastic as we got into the, the, you know, the mid to late stages of 2007. Um, so we were, we were fortunate. We were looking at, you know, looking at the data and we pulled back the reins. We didn't deploy any more capital to buy new deals. And we just focused on our exit strategy. And given what happened to everybody else, as you entered into, you know, 2008, we did quite well for, you know, for investors. And, you know, it was, it was 
of great learning curve. And, you know, and on the heels of that, we decided we wanted to do something that was more sustainable. And that was really the formation of Trilogy. So our CFO at the time, my brother and myself, you know, decided to, to move forward with buying existing multifamily real estate to rent and own and operate for an extended period. And so that was sort of the transition from the condo world into, into truly more of the, the for rent space. Got it. Right. So if Monaco was focused more on condo conversion or, or street development. Yeah, we had some, we had some new development as well, mostly East coast, but Phoenix, it was primarily the, the conversion world. Right. Trilogy became from its onset in 2008, a vertically integrated, a multifamily owner operator. Yeah. So we weren't, we weren't actually operators from the start. We were really focused more on sort of the asset management layer and obviously the, the acquisitions and investment management side as well. We knew that we wanted to do property management, um, but at the time we were really focused on building our portfolio, deploying capital in our first fund and learning from third-party partners on what we wanted to do, you know, and, and once we, once we did ultimately take uh, management in house. So it was really those first call it six or seven years of, you know, using third-party management, you know, both, you know, boutique size to the bigs and really building our platform behind the scenes. We did take our, you know, our software and technology in-house in 2012 and then ultimately started bringing our portfolio in-house in 2016. So we've, we've uh, been fully, vid fully uh, vertically integrated since 2016. Really remarkable. And if we're, if we're looking at the crossroads here, 2008, you, you, your brother, your CFO, you start Trilogy. You are only, I think, in your late 20s at this point. Is that correct? The math's off. Yes, late, late 20s. <laughs> late 20s. That's remarkable for anybody, uh, you know, in their career. How, if, if the audience is listening and they're maybe in their mid-late 20s and they, they have grand ambitions as well, what would you recommend for somebody who, who wants to become a principal at a real estate firm you know, without waiting one or two decades. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, you know, timing is everything. And obviously there was a crash course in a real estate cycle right in front of me. So I think that sort of put me in a position that was maybe unique um, from, you know, from a timing standpoint to be able to see a true crash collision with a recession, you know, we haven't seen it since. And that's, you know, that's, you know, 2008. So I had the benefit of, you know, of, of early in my career, seeing something that was, you know, was, was, pretty, you know, pretty interesting, pretty wild to go through. And I think that allowed me to sort of be able to zoom out a bit and and sort of understand the fundamentals of real estate pretty quickly. I would say from, you know, from those that are aspiring to sort of jump into leadership positions, I think the first and foremost is, you know, you've got to really, you know, spend the time educating yourself on, you know, on, on what it means. And I think it, there's a lot of different avenues and it also depends on what you want to do, right? I'm, I'm an operations, so the path to, you know, to be an operations executive is quite different than, you know, let's say an acquisitions executive. So I think you've got to put yourself out there. You've got to educate yourself on what you want to do and then drive towards that. And I think it's, you know, it, it's always networking. It's always education, you know, for me. And, and I think there's some fast tracks to sort of get yourself there, but, you know, it, it has to come via experience and, you know, and putting yourself out there. I think as I see people that are successful in taking that next step, they're the ones that are really pressing to, learn more and just be constant lifelong learners where they're making an effort to get into those affiliate programs, whether it's through the National Apartment Association or the local groups and, and make the connections. I just sat through a two-hour board meeting at Chicagoland Apartment Association. I still continue to learn from my peers. I sat down and, and was talking for you know, 15 to 20 minutes with someone that I respect dearly, who's you know, top 25 multifamily family owner and operator. 
just learning about, you know, sort of what they're doing, what their strategy is for the next cycle. So I think, you know, my advice to those that are aspiring is, you know, put yourself out there, get yourself involved in those organizations that are going to allow you to connect with people that have been there and done that. And I think that that sort of first step to to really sort of understand what it takes and understand the dynamic of, you know, of those leaders is the the first part of, you know, the journey to to get into those leadership type roles. Very well said. And as a former member of the CAA, Chicago Apartment Land Association, I know that's one of the better ones in the in the US. I've since moved out of state, but great to hear you're still participating strong and and it's mutually valuable, I'm sure. Let's talk more about the early years at Trilogy. And I don't know if there's a kind of turning point in your mind of when it became kind of like at the, the scale that it is today, which is a big scale in my in my opinion. When, how did your role evolve? Because I know you, you said that initially you weren't doing third, you weren't doing management, right? You were the asset management layer. So what was your role in the first, I don't know, handful of years? And then how did that evolve as Trilogy grew? Yeah. I mean, we were, you know, fairly small from a headcount standpoint early on and, you know, really through about, you know, our first couple thousand units, we were extraordinarily lean. And obviously we didn't have the property management business, but we were building a very strong asset management layer so that we could understand how our third parties were operating. And we were really entrenched with our communities. We were also doing a lot of value add deals. So we were very involved in that, you know, sort of construction management, renovation, reposition piece. So we're interacting with our site teams on a regular basis. So for me, it was, you know, being very involved from an asset management standpoint, being very involved from a capital projects and renovation standpoint, and also being a sponge. So at, at the time, you know, we had the benefit of having four or five different third parties. And again, from, you know, sort of the boutique regionals to the the big nationals. So it was really informative to understand how they were all operating from human resources standpoint, from a property management systems, you know, and, and everything else that, that goes into it to, to really start formulating our plan. And again, we're building our book real time off of what we're seeing and experiencing and taking the good, leaving the bad and, and putting together what we now feel is, you know, world-class, world-class, uh, you know, property management platform. But it was, it was 90% roll up your sleeves and get involved and, and learn everything and, you know, and, and 10%, you know, sort of op- observing and, and, and iterating. Yeah. So it's so important to be a sponge in those early years. I remember the the twenties very well. It wasn't that long ago, I suppose, but learning is so important to level yourself up. And it sounds like you did a ton of that. I I'm sure many folks who are listening to this are currently working in asset management. They are working through third parties, operating partners, as some of them are called. Any anything you you learned that was like a aha moment or kind of like a sophisticated take on working with operating partners to achieve your your strategy uh, what, what really clicked for you when you when you were in that asset management role yeah i think you know early on using multiple third parties we also you know had a downside effect of having multiple property management systems and disparate information right so i think the aha moment as we're going through that process was you know 3 or 4 years into it saying hey, we've got to get software in-house, even if we're not going to manage ever, like we've got to control the data and understand how our deals are performing. So it was, you know, early stages. I don't know if you remember a company called Rentlytics, Justin Alanis, he's a good friend. They built one of the first sort of agnostic 
BI tools in the industry where we're able to connect all of our different property management pieces into this one, one BI platform. And that was, you know, that was wild to be able to have everything under one roof, even though we had, you know, three or four different property management systems out there. And for that first time of being able to have dashboards populate where we weren't manually doing it, it was automatic and, you know, and, and we were going through, and of course there's the data validation period, making sure everything's consistent and, you know, and, and, uh, and going through that process was important, but to see it all in one dashboard just solidified that, Hey, we've got to ultimately bring software in-house before we even think about property management. So that first step of seeing everything real time and have that access to our data in one spot was important and really an aha moment. The second part was actually bringing software in-house. And, you know, we, we decided at that point, we didn't want to bring everything in-house, help desk and support. We wanted to leverage our third party still. So we found a common denominator software platform that all of our third parties supported. So we were able to leverage their resources, but still have access and control over our system. So for those of you that are out there that are using third parties, I think, you know, being able to tie all of your data together into one dashboard is a first great step. But then ultimately, if you have an intent to take management in-house at some point, certainly thinking about bringing that under under your roof and, and leveraging your third parties to manage it, but having access 100% to your information is is critical. And, and it also helped us once we ultimately took management in-house to not have that additional hurdle. We were really focused on the human component and bringing the team on board. And we didn't have to worry about software because our teams were already operating on our platform. So that was, that was, you know, that, that in my opinion was probably one of the best decisions we made. Excellent. When you were still working with the third parties, I know because you are a client of mine, you are extremely respectful and a great communicator with your, all of your service pro providers. And I've heard this from others as well. How would you say, how would you describe your approach with service providers even today? But, but even back then, how, how were you able to get the best out of a partnership through, through kind of the human connection? Yeah, I think, you know, with anything, especially at, at that time, you know, we didn't have significant size or scale. It was just truly building the relationships. And I think, you know, respecting our third parties, understanding sort of their, you know, their process. And, and it wasn't always perfect. I mean, there were moments of oil and vinegar where, you know, we wanted things done our way. And I'm sure that stressed them out to take them outside of sort of their normal, you know, sort of path and us implementing a piece of software that we thought was really important that might not align with what their objective, you know, was. Th those, those moments happened where we had not clashes, but, you know, but sort of difference in opinions. And we had to manage through that. But I think it was always, you know, a function of, really, you know, build a relationship, focus on, you know, on those key people within those organizations to help drive your, you know, your mission and your goal. And I think did a good job of it. I'm sure there was, you know, parts that they didn't love where we were, you know, we were sort of getting very heavily involved from asset management, especially as we neared sort of the finish line of bringing everything in house. But overall, it was, you know, it was certainly a learning, learning curve, you know, for the benefit of us, you know, and hopefully them to an extent. But as you're looking at, you know, partnerships, I, I think for me, I've probably learned more from our, you know, call it third party supplier partner relationships than I have from people that are, you know, sitting on my side of the table. And, you know, a lot of times as I'm going to conferences or networking, I, I get more benefit talking to people like you, Jonathan, about what you're doing and your interaction because you're dealing with hundreds of clients and you have a, a great purview into sort of our industry that, you know, a lot of other, you know, owner operators or property management companies don't necessarily always realize. And I think there's a huge, huge untapped benefit to being really connected with our supplier partners, learning more about the industry, you know, understanding trends. And a lot of times, you know, it, it, it's interesting when we have 
supplier partners that are coming from outside of the industry in because you also get a broader lens into other markets and other uh, arenas and you know and that can come in a lot of different forms so I, I you know I spend a lot of my time creating those relationships in a really true and authentic way um, and it's been invaluable I can speak from firsthand experience you absolutely do that and I know many others on the vendor side here at different companies that say the same about you I think I, I can see where you're coming from I think it's remarkable that you're one of the few who, who does that in our industry because as you say we we do have connections with hundreds of different clients and we have lots of data points that we can kind of kind of lend some insight on on various things. Let's talk more about when you made that transition. You brought in management into Trilogy. Was that was that fairly rudimentary at this point because you you had so much experience working with your site teams or or did that present maybe some new challenges that needed to be learned on your end? You know, I think one thing that we did really well is we we took our time with it and we gave our third-party partners a lot of runway. So it wasn't, hey, we're taking property management in-house in 30 days. It was over the course of a year. So we had an acquisition in Chicago, which was, you know, perfect because we used that as our incubator. So that was, you know, mid-20 or early 2016. And we used that as our sort of incubator to build our policies and procedures and take all of that information that we had gathered over the prior, you know, six or seven years and really, you know, start to build that world-class platform and operate on our, on our systems, our processes, everything for a period of time before we started taking the rest of the portfolio in-house. And then what we did is we picked markets and we started to take those in-house on a quarterly basis. So it wasn't all at once. We didn't flip the switch. And that gave us a huge benefit with our teams because our, our goal was on, you know, recruiting. We were, you know, we were effectively recruiting from our third parties. We let them know that we were going to do it. We came up with the appropriate agreements and it, it wasn't a perfect science, but I think it, it ended up being a huge benefit to do that over time because we got to really spend a, a lot of, you know, a lot of time with those teams and talk to them about what we wanted to do as Trilogy. And they already knew us. There was already a level of trust there. But we, over, you know, that following year, took all of our markets in-house, spent a lot of time with those teams. And we retained about 90% of our of our existing uh, team that was managing uh, via the third parties, which was a great feather in the cap. You know, in those other 10%, there were some that didn't have sort of alignment with what we wanted to accomplish. There were others that had long-term tenure with those third parties. Um, but by and large, a majority of the team moved over and, you know, and, and we had already been part of the process of, you know, of sort of bringing those people on via the third parties. So uh, again, there was, you know, there was already the inherent trust. There was always that, ex already that experience and trust factor. And I think, uh, Overall, it went as well as it could, but it, it certainly, you know, comes with a different level of challenge. You're, you know, you're going from, you know, relatively small sort of, you know, team to now your biggest component of your workforce is your property management team, which you're, you, you've just recently taken over. So there, there was a, a lot to learn, you know, and a lot of programming that we had to put in place to make sure we were successful there. Absolutely. And it seems like that perhaps altered your trajectory as COO because, up until 2015, 16, with this first first experiment of coming in-house, you were an asset manager, essentially, right? Managing the third parties. Now you're building an organization under you. And I think, as you said earlier in the in the show, you today, most of your headcount is overseeing operations. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was, you know, it was a shift, but it was something that was anticipated and intended. And I think, you know, 
I love it. I mean, a property management, you know, a lot of people have different opinions, but for me, it's, it's, it's something new every day. Obviously we have the consistent, we have the routine, but it, it is something where we learn something new every day. I think every single day there's some new challenge that surfaces or something you're dealing with. And I think I, I say this to our team often, we're the only industry where we work, where people live. And, you know, if you really digest that, it's, it's, it's truly unique. And I think we, you know, as, as, you know, stewards of those communities, we, we've got to perform at a different level because we want our residents, our customers to come home and have that sanctuary. Whereas there's a lot of other industries that don't have that. You, you, you know, you turn off the lights at the end of the day and you check out and you come back the next day and, and turn them back on. For us, those lights are, you know, truly on 24 seven and we've got to perform, you know, that level of service in a different, different capacity than a lot of others. So for me, it's rewarding. And, and again, it's challenging. There's a lot of work to it. There's a huge people component, but it's, it's, it's truly unique and, and fun. Anything you learned the hard way as you started to bring things in house? Any, anything you wish you maybe had done differently from the early years? I don't know if there's anything monumental, but I'll give you, you know, a story that was sort of, you know, sort of telling to, you know, to who we are it was, you know, we really spent a lot of time focusing on that education component early. And we, you know, we learned pretty quickly that, you know, through all of our third party partners at the time, there wasn't a whole lot of emphasis on maintenance. And for us, it was one of those, you know, sort of aha moments, like you mentioned before, where we're like, how, how are we not spending time on the maintenance teams in a meaningful way? So we, through that early process of taking everything in-house, really focused on getting out and understanding what our maintenance teams were doing. And we picked a small group of sort of senior maintenance supervisors that we'd worked with for a long time via our third parties, as well as our capital projects team and, and asset management team. And we went out and we went to every community. We interviewed our maintenance team and, and asked them the simple things of how do you handle work orders? How do you handle turns? How do you learn what you're doing? And, you know, there was a lot of consistency and commonality, but it was, I learned from my prior boss or I learned on the job or I was thrown to the wolves and I figured it out. And so for us, we're like, build this into something meaningful. So we literally took all that information and put together a process around how to handle those basic, you know, baseline items, you know, that, that our maintenance teams do on a daily basis, including customer service, which isn't really, or wasn't at the time really, you know, focused on. And then we went back out and physically did a road show and met with our teams and retrained them on how to do X, Y, and Z. And again, they all knew how to do it, but just in different ways. And so we formalized that and really, you know, made that a cornerstone of our education process. And I think that was, you know, that, that to me was a, an early game changer and something that, you know, I, I would have spent more time on, you know, looking back, but it was, it was formative and we continue to do that every year. We pick topics. We look at all of our work order history, see what the most common items are that are out there. And we go and do a maintenance roadshow based on, on those. So HVAC, plumbing, electrical, et cetera, we'll put together that programming on an annual basis. And our, and our team goes out and trains our, our maintenance folks on, on those items. And it's quite interactive and it's been really, really important. Fascinating. It, I can tell from interactions with you going back many years, you are a very conscientious leader. You're very thoughtful. And it seems like you are always kind of raising the bar for excellence as you learn more. Where do you draw on your inspirations for, for what world-class looks like? Where, because you've grown up at a large part of your career has been within Trilogy. So, so the same company, I think now for 16 years before that Monaco, but we're besides vendor relationships, like, like the one you and I have, do you draw inspiration from other sources on, on how to make Trilogy better and better every year? 
Yeah, I think it's, you know, there's a bit of internal and there's a bit of external. I think, you know, for me, connecting with our team, first of all, on a consistent basis, being authentic, being there, you know, letting them know that we're, we're there, we're in the trenches with you. That's part of it. I learn a lot there and I get a lot of inspiration from our team. And there's just a lot of unique people and personalities to, to draw on. And, and I think you have to be introspective in order to be successful in, in what we do. And then, you know, externally, I think there's a lot of, you know, outside of sort of my, my, you know, supplier partner relationships in industry, there are a few North stars that I look up to, you know, just from a reputational standpoint, there's specific leaders within those organizations that, you know, resonate with me. They focus a lot on culture. They focus a lot on people, but they're incredible operators. And, you know, and, and I know we're not naming, naming names of other organizations, but, but there are a handful of those that I really, truly look up to and, and aspire to be, you know, both, you know, from a you know, portfolio size, but more importantly, from a reputational standpoint, they're the ones that we all know that, you know, that, that you look up to. Okay. Fantastic. And now Trilogy, I, I, as you mentioned, is 8,500 units. You're at what I would consider a, a, a pretty big scale. Your reporting org- organization is, I think you said about a hundred people. How has, how has it been, or, or can you describe what it, what has maybe shifted in recent years as you, you've gotten to this scale? Have you had to level up your own leadership in, in any ways to manage this, this level of scale? And what I understand to be a, a fairly dispersed organization, I know your Chicago office has uh, a good number of your headcount there who come into the office occasionally, but you, as you said, you have assets in uh, a number of states going down to Miami. What have you What have you learned? How have you adapted to uh, growing Trilogy to the size it is today? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, we, we're in 11 states, 14 markets. So we are spread out, you know, given the unit count, we're, we're, in, we're in a lot of different locations. And as, as we've sort of expanded and gotten bigger and, you know, and grown as an organization, we love our DNA. So I think for me, it's been a lot about how do we preserve that, right? A lot of companies as they grow tend to, you know, tend to have those growing pains and, you know, and, and may shake their initial sort of mission or, or, or culture. And for me, it's about the, the leadership shifts have been about understanding how we can scale the DNA. And we've done it in a couple different ways that I think have been important. One is we put a lot of emphasis on that centralized education. And then more importantly, we've really built a robust mentorship program. So as we have new team members that join, we pair senior team members that are in that mentorship program together. So there's a peer-to-peer relationship and, you know, and, and they really, you know, more so than sort of that onboarding and education, they become brand, brand ambassadors of, of the company. And we have a number of different people that I put in that same bucket, but our mentor program has been extraordinarily um, important to continuing to sort of keep that DNA intact where we have, you know, communities that are in a market where we may only have one or two, you know, assets. It, it's important for those teams to understand that there's a bigger part of Trilogy. And I think having those connectivity points has been been really important. And I think just in, in general, again, looking at sort of like things that we're putting in place that are truly scalable, right? And, you know, and, and that that takes a lot of time and effort. It's a little different, you know, from before we could just throw a dart at the board and pivot if it didn't work. We have to be a little bit more thoughtful because we're not, you know, we're now impacting change for a lot more people and you want to, you know, you want to sort of balance that, you know, that innovative with, you know, being disruptive. And I think that's something that I focus on a lot. Makes sense. Yeah. I've heard from other folks in the industry, there's, there's pilot fatigue. It, you know, how many new technologies can we pilot at one site in one year? Uh, and I'm sure you are among the most thoughtful about that. So kudos. 
How do you feel about the shift toward hybrid work? Where do you where do you stand on remote versus hybrid? And I know it's unique for you because a good part of your team are on site and distributed across eleven states, but also a good number of your team are were hired within the Chicago market to at least initially work in your beautiful office in River North Chicago. So what's your view on co-working together? Yeah, it's interesting. We have we have we're bifurcated, right? So you've got, you know, our site teams which are definitively, you know, in person on site. And I know we're all talking about centralization and what that looks like. So there's, you know, there's there's different iterations of, you know, of, of sort of how our on-site teams function, but truly like even through the pandemic, that was, you know, something that that you struggle with, right? You have a dedicated team that has to be there and physically present on site to to service our residents and then you have some flexibility as it pertains to call it like HQ or corporate positions. You know, I don't know where it's ultimately going to land. I hear certain, you know, folks out there that are pushing to have their workforce back for a couple of days a week or potentially, you know, full time. And then I hear others that are, you know, are satisfied with hybrid. You know, we've talked to a lot of folks that have shed their office spaces. So, you know, it's been a learning experience, I think, for us. We're, We're probably more in the bucket of let's not be, you know, super, you know, reactive right now. Let's see where the, the dust settles with the, you know, with what's going on with all these other folks that are taking more extreme sort of measures and, and, you know, really take a sort of more calculated approach to, to long-term decision. But um, the reality is we do have a little bit more of a, you know, of a hybrid sort of environment from an HQ corporate standpoint today. Um, and then our site teams are still performing, um, you know, on site for the most part, we do have some unique sort of in, intermediate type roles, you know, that, that have been pretty valuable that, that are a little bit more hybrid at the site level. But overall, it's, you know, it's still something that we're digesting and trying to understand what the right path is forward. What I can say is when I'm in the office and I, I love being in the office, I'm not one of those people that can work from home, you know, so it's pretty infrequent when I'm, when I'm not at my desk. There is a different level of energy and collaboration that happens in the workplace. So we do encourage our team to be in a couple of days a week. It's not required. Um, but when we do see those events happen, there, there is a dynamic shift in a positive way. Um, And I like that. And I think our teams enjoy it. And I think it's, you know, it's dependent. It's not, you know, it's not full scale across the board, but I think for the most part, people enjoy that camaraderie. They enjoy the collaboration. They enjoy them in person. But I think there's a degree that, you know, some of them don't want that to be forced. And I think right now we're in that spot where it's, you know, it's, it's, it's still hybrid and not forced, but we're, we're again, digesting and sort of understanding what's, what's going to come. Absolutely. Same here. Um, personally more in the camp of having the workforce stay remote, but I know we have a very different type of business. We, we can do that uh, because of the nature of our organization. I think it'll be really interesting to see where the rest of the, the business world lands here. And I think the shifts are, are still kind of mid-stage and we'll know more in the next couple of years. I, I, I have to ask, you know, kind of a, a random observation, but Whenever I visit your office, Girish, in River North, I'm always incredibly impressed by not only how incredibly clean it is all the time, <laughs> like not not anything seems out of place, but also just the thoughtfulness behind your hospitality there, right? You're, I mean, you have any type of beverage imaginable, either on tap or in, in a refrigerator fully stocked at all times, and snacks and healthy snacks and I have to imagine your fo- your fingerprint is on a lot of the office facilities. Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, to an extent. I got to say, you know, Neil, Neil, my brother also is a is a huge advocate of creating that environment. You know, I think as we're looking at 
you know, a lot of our, our partners, again, in, internally, externally, you know, taking sort of the best practices of what they all have done from a human sort of relationship standpoint. And, and we want our team to be comfortable. We want them to, you know, have opportunities to grab a snack at, you know, the office or have something that they would, you know, drink at, at home as well and, you know, and, and feel comfortable. And I think it just lends to our culture. But, but I'd say it's, it's collaborative. It's a group effort and we iterate on it. You know, we like having fun with it. And same thing. I want to open up the fridge and see something that I would drink at home instead of, you know, something that, you know, that, that's sort of prescribed, but, but it, it's fun. We, we like it. We have fun with it. You know, we, we like to try out new things as well. You're definitely creating a space that people will want to come in and work at, which is, I'm sure, strategic and smart. Tell me more about your your leadership relationship with other executives. I'm sure some folks in our audience are maybe mid-career. They work alongside peers who oversee other verticals. What's that collaboration like? Because you said Neil oversees a certain part of the business. I believe you still have a CFO overseeing finances and potentially investment management. What's your relationship like with your your other executives? Yeah, I think, you know, we have the benefit of being really collaborative. So, you know, our goal is we, we you know, we hire and we bring in really, you know, really smart people. So why silo them? And I think we see that a lot in our industry where, you know, where divisions are siloed. And for us, you know, by way of example, our asset management meetings, we bring in operations, asset management, finance and accounting, legal, acquisitions. Um, development just so our teams can understand sort of how we're operating. And I think, you know, one good example within that is, you know, our acquisitions team, they're underwriting, you know, a lot of deals. And for them to understand how the deals are performing once, you know, once they've sort of gotten, you know, gotten into our portfolio and platform, it's important that that may, you know, cause them to shift a little bit. It's also allowed us to have people move, you know, within the organization into different departments. We've had accounting into asset management, asset management and acquisition. I think that's not common, you know, and, and it's, it's really opened our eyes to wanting to maintain that, you know, that part of our DNA forever, just because it, it has created some pretty cool instances and, you know, and allowed us to learn a lot, but, you know, the goal is open the hood and, and let everybody in just so that we can get better as an organization. And, you know, and again, not a lot of organizations are like that for us. It's, it's part of the culture. I think that's so smart. I think I personally prescribe to that as well. And I, Picked up that principle a couple of years ago, reading Amp It Up by Frank Slootman, the CEO of Snowflake. His principle of going direct is literally in our our values and principles sheet now at With Me Inc. And what, why allow silos? Why ask somebody to ask their manager to then ask another manager to then have a meeting for four people? Doesn't make sense. So so kudos for having a flat organization or one that at least feels flat. If you had to boil down your leadership superpowers into three adjectives, what would those three be? Yeah. Let's see. I don't know if I can put it into adjectives on the spot, but <laughs> principles, adjectives. Yeah. But... I'd say, you know, I, I mentioned it earlier, but you have to be intentional and authentic. And I think within that bucket, you do have to be willing to do anything. And I think that is part of our, you know, part of our, our DNA from, you know, our, our president Clayton, his you know, his ability to sort of zoom in and zoom out and all of us like that, that's just, that's part of the ethos. And I think you, 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 your team knows when you're willing to do it and when you're faking it. So I think that that's part of it. I think creating meaningful connections with your people is, you know, is extraordinarily important and something that we do on a consistent basis. And that doesn't always mean like you have to get on, out on site every week or, you know, every other week, like we, we try to be on site as much as we can to connect, um, again, in a, in a non-disruptive way. 
Um, but there are other ways. Like I, I personally, every new team member that joins, I do a quick 15 minute meet and greet Zoom just so they know who I am, that direct connection, give them my cell phone number, let them know that they can use it. It's not just, you know, out there for novelty. Let me know if you're seeing things that you like or don't like or areas where we might be able to improve. And, and that's been really important. And I think the pandemic helped that a lot where, you know, before it was like you meet in person, you, you know, you may have a couple calls where you're on with a group, you know, of, of team members that are on site. Now it's, you know, it's a, it's a quick instant, you know, way to, to really make meaningful connections. And then when you meet them on site, you all already feel like you, you know, you know, them and it's not the first time. So that, that's been really important. Have people and, taken you up on that? Because I, yeah. okay, I yeah. encourage the same and I, I rarely get the direct message. Yeah. Sometimes start it off where you text them. So if if you can like fire off the first text and that I think opens that, you know, opens that up a little bit more, it makes them feel more comfortable with it. So I think that that, that's been, you know, something that I do. We also, we have a lot of internal initiatives. We've got a, you know, internal communication platform, like a lot of other folks do called WorkVivo. It's sort of, you know, Slack meets, you know, Facebook, right? So we have the ability to post pictures Our you know, our Chicago team can see what our site teams are doing, vice versa. And then we also have a health and wellness initiative that's, you know, powered by a, an app called Sprout. And so that's been really cool to connect. And we do challenges on, you know, monthly basis, and that might be a steps challenge. And I'll, I'll intentionally, you know, pick, you know, one or two new team members from different communities and partner with them. And then we have our side texts that, you know, that go on. I think all those little actions help make people feel more comfortable and that they're not being an inconvenience. But I like it. I think it's also, you know, the reaction that you give them when you do start texting that, you know, that's equally important to that first text. So that that's one of it. And I think, you know, the, the other one is resiliency. I think we, we deal with, like I said, with an interesting that's uh, interesting and unique industry, you know, and you got to be able to roll with punches. And I think your, your team sees that and I think you can bounce back from it. And we all have had several of those punches over the last handful of years. So I think that resiliency is probably that last bucket. Okay, well said, putting you on the spot. But those are three great buckets. Thank you. Outside of your day-to-day at Trilogy, I also know you're passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Can you tell the audience more about how you got involved in DEI initiatives, what you do today at NAA and now at CAA? Yeah. Yeah. So I joined NAA's DEI committee in 2019, you know, and I think that was an important step. And I think I was looking internally, I was like, you know, this is, this is something being a minority leader in a unique position where, you know, as you look at leadership within our industry, it isn't as diverse as it should be. And I felt it was important for me to, you know, put myself out there, get involved with NAA. And, you know, it was very interesting to see sort of the strategy that committee had only been formed in 2018. So it was only around for about a year before I joined. And then fast forward into 2020, when you know, when when that whole world changed, the spotlight was on us. So it was it was really amazing to sort of see it very briefly before, and then into 2020, where we you know we had a lot of attention, we had access to a lot more resources, and everybody wanted to know what we we're doing. So to be part of that, and you know, be part of the strategy, be part of the roadmap, to work with really interesting, cool people has been really formative. And at the same time, we were also creating our own internal trilogy DEI committee. So looking at sort of the national output and what we could do internally, you know, at at our organization was great to pair those together. And, you know, it continues to be an iteration. We just we just onboarded our second sort of class of of DEI council members internally at trilogy. And it was a significant, you know, size group. And, you know, we were able to now create subcommittees and really drive those initiatives in a more meaningful way because we've got bandwidth and resources. So that's been that's been quite powerful. Kudos. And now 
I, if I understand from what you told me before the show, you're at CAA today. I am. Are they look? Are they looking to also take on an initiative? Yeah. So interestingly enough, I'll give you a little background on it. So within NAA, they have a diversity leadership program where they pair mentees with mentors. And through that process, I, you know, had the benefit of having an incredible mentee and her and I stay close. She actually just joined Trilogy. Uh, her first day was yesterday. So my mentee through this DLP program is now a Trilogy employee, which is pretty cool. But she approached me about a year ago and she's been part of the, you know, Chicagoland Apartment Association for a while. She's like, we don't have any anything at CAA, you know, from a DEI standpoint, we should approach, you know, CAA to see if they're interested in us helping, you know, and, and I was like, let's do it. Let's, let's, you know, take that first stab. And we, we approached the CAA leadership about seven, eight, nine months ago, and they were super open to it. We ended up presenting in front of the entire board and I was a CAA board member at the time and the reception was really warm. And, uh, you know, and, and we then, you know, sort of did an internal CAA member survey, got feedback from our constituents. And, uh, you know, from there started formulating a plan to really build, you know, what we hope will be, you know, a, a, an important part of the organization and affiliate program. And hopefully we can, you know, continue to drive additional diversity initiatives within, within our industry from a local standpoint. Fantastic. And I also know you're, you're big into skiing, as we mentioned in the intro, Hel helicopter skiing, which I think is a whole other level. I am I'm barely able to get down a black without falling once or twice. So for those skiers who are maybe better than me can ski the whole mountain, but haven't quite done heli skiing. What would you say about doing it? Is it, is it a leap that most people can take? Yeah, I think so. I think people have that, you know, misconception that when you go heli skiing, like it's only extreme, I, you know, I've, I've been on a pretty extreme heli trip and then I've been on ones with, you know, skiers that can ski blocks, but not, you know, they're not necessarily like extreme skiers and, you know, it, you can kind of choose your own adventure. The benefit of, you know, flying to a location to jump out and ski is you can kind of put you down anywhere. So if you, if you're with a group that's more experienced, you can do that type of, you know, terrain, or if you're with a group that may not have that experience, you can pivot and do something that's a little more tame or, or get a little bit of everything depending on where you are. But it's, it's unlike anything else. I think that ability to ski just untouched snow is, you know, is unique. And it's one of the few times that, and I also scuba dive where, when I'm skiing, I'm not thinking about anything except for what's in front of me. And it's, I don't listen to music. It's, you know, sort of the one with nature piece. And I love that sound of, you know, turning and just listening and, you know, part of that nature piece as well. So it's something unique to what you get on the mountain. And I love skiing anywhere, but like that, the, those handful of times where I've been able to hella ski or powder, you know, snowcat ski, um, you, you really sort of are at a different level and, and maybe a little bit more in tune with nature in those areas that are less populated. You're blazing your own trails even in the wilderness. So kudos, Girish. And if anybody wants to find out more about Trilogy and is curious about your open opportunities, where's the best way for them to find them? Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, we've, we've got a lot of information out there in the digital stratosphere, but would love to, you know, connect. You know, you're more than welcome to, to put my information out there, you know, whether it's LinkedIn or through other social channels. Feel free to reach out and love connecting with, you know, others in the industry and, and continuing to expand my network. Great. We'll put that in the show notes. Girish, thank you again for joining us today. It was really fun. It was a pleasure. And best of luck on Trilogy's continued meteoric growth. Congratulations again. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate it. It's great to spend some time with you this morning. And thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for listening to this episode of Multifamily Excellence, brought to you by With Me. 
With me is making lives better every day through convenient technology-enabled amenities for the multifamily industry and beyond. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you.